Hello, everybody, and welcome to Narrative. We begin with breaking news. A judge in Denver is set to rule if Donald Trump can be kept off the 2024 presidential ballot in Colorado because of the January the 6th insurrection. It's the first of a series of rulings that may represent the last hope of stopping Trump from competing in next year's elections. The 2024 presidential election is less than a year away, and it's been hard to avoid the panic among Democrats that despite four criminal indictments, two devastating civil suits, concluding that Donald Trump is a racist and a con man, that Trump remains the leading candidate in the GOP presidential race. And in at least one poll, he is tied or leading President Joe Biden. It's not that Republican supporters don't know Donald Trump is a dictator in waiting. They are okay with it. It seems to me that millions of Americans are actually in favor of authoritarian rule. They justify it in terms of protecting the white minority's hold on power and on capital. They realize, of course, this is not constitutional. They understand they will have to build a police state to enforce it. And they know this leaves the United States aligned with war criminals like Vladimir Putin. But they do not care. So it seems that we are heading into an election where logic is completely irrelevant and one side is in favor of a dictatorship. Of course, here at Narrative, we understand that this scenario still leaves Joe Biden the clear, likely winner in 2024. But in politics, anything can happen. And if you're wondering how a guy who attempted a coup can still be in the running for president, you're asking the right question. That brings us to our guest tonight. John Anthony Castro is uniquely positioned to challenge Trump's eligibility in the 2024 election. As a GOP presidential candidate, John has legal standing to contest Trump's candidacy on the grounds of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. John's been on the show before, and we're glad he's back with us tonight to discuss the Colorado case and his own case, which will soon be picking up steam as soon as next week. Hi, John. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks. I'm glad you're on tonight because, as you know, we're expecting a decision tomorrow morning in the Colorado case, which is different to your case because it's brought by six voters who have challenged Trump's eligibility to run in the primaries there. And tomorrow will be the first big case where we have a judgment from the bench as to whether Trump can run in those primaries. What do you expect will happen in the Colorado case tomorrow? It's anyone's guess how the lower court will rule, but I can say that the biggest risk in that case is that even if it goes all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court, and let's presume, you know, best case scenario that the lower court says that, yes, in accordance with the U.S. Court of Appeals decision that was uh, published a few years back by Neil Gorsuch that said secretaries of states are empowered to make determinations of qualifications. And and let's say they, they decide that under state law, the individuals have standing, they brought a valid claim, and they decide to say that they think you know, all facts and circumstances considered that there was engagement, aid or comfort provided to an insurrection and he's disqualified from the ballot. The biggest risk there is a lot of false hope, in, in my opinion. If it goes up to the Colorado Supreme Court, they could uphold it. But then what's going to happen is Trump's going to appeal it to the United States Supreme Court. And the thing is that there's case law. And believe me, I'm the last person in the world to make an argument in favor of Trump. But I, I want to set people's expectations realistically. I believe that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to say federal preemption applies. 
federal preemption mean? applies. Yeah, I'll explain that. So federal preemption applies when states try to determine an issue of federal law. So the Supreme Court has said that states don't have the power to prosecute treason, right? Because treason is in the U.S. Constitution. Treason can only be committed against the federal government, not against state governments. Right. And so on that basis, um, the federal judiciary is the sole province to make the determination of whether something constituted treason. And the thing is that when you really look into the operational mechanics of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, how it came to be, what we initially had in the U.S. Constitution was a provision that said if you provide aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States, foreign or domestic, that's treason. And it's still there. But what happened by operation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is the foreign or domestic part got bifurcated. Now, providing aid or comfort to a foreign enemy is still treason. But providing aid or comfort to a domestic enemy is violates the insurrection clause, the sole penalty for which is not looked death as treason. It's uh, a lifetime ban from public office. This was recognized by uh, former uh, Chief Justice of the United States, Salmon P. Chase, in the criminal trial of the former president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, in 1872. So, and again, that was like fresh on everybody's right minds, right? Because, I mean, the Section 3 had just been enacted. All these laws were happening, right? So the uh, Chief Justice's perceptions at that time were were very much accurate. And that's my biggest concern is that there's all this hoorah, the Colorado Supreme Court upholds it, right? Everybody's going to lose their mind and, and jumping up in jubilee and joy. And then the U.S. Supreme Court pours cold water on it based on a very simple argument, which is, sorry, guys, federal preemption. State courts can't decide what constitutes insurrection under the U.S. Constitution. A federal judge has to determine questions of federal law under 28 U.S.C. 1331. So and then ultimately it. it's going to have to go to a, a Supreme Court uh, to determine whether this was an insurrection or not on January the 6th or because all these cases, don't they all have a build on the basis of an insurrection on January the exactly. 6th? Exactly. Yeah. So in your yeah, case exactly. as well, everyone's case needs to be ultimately proved. Yeah. Now my, my read of it, and I, of course I'm a layman, I have no idea, but I, my uh, read of it is that he you know, doesn't need anything other than just a understanding. And there seems to be an understanding that, there was an insurrection on January the 6th. They walked like a duck, act like, acted like a duck, must be a duck. Does it need to go to a court? There's no mention of that in oh, the section. It, I agree. And that's see, in my case, that's Trump's argument is that Trump hasn't been criminally charged, let alone convicted of insurrection. Right. And, and that is definitely not required. That's a ludicrous legal argument. And right. even the judge in Arizona, I just had a trial on the uh, papers in, in Arizona before Judge Douglas Reyes, the U.S. District Court for the District of Arizona. And that was the issue that came up was, does Trump need to have been criminally indicted or charged with insurrection in order for this to come into play or convicted? And the answer is most definitely no. Uh, that's not what the founding fathers considered. The, the burden of proof was not beyond a reasonable doubt. In fact, it's arguable that the framers would have intended a very low, the lowest burden and standard of proof, which is preponderance of the evidence, right? 50% threshold basically means that if it even came freaking close to an insurrection, that's enough to disqualify a person because nobody should be dabbling in that kind of behavior that's destructive to, you know, the civilized foundations of a republic. So doesn't that make the federal exemption sort of a catch-22 then? If, they, if it has to be ruled by a federal court that it was an insurrection, but the actual, you know, Section 3 doesn't call for a ruling, where, you know, does, how do we sort that out? How do we sort out whether... Yes. 
Yeah, and, and that's what Judge Douglas Ray is. When, so he questioned me first, and then after that, he turned to Brian Hardy. That was the attorney representing Donald Trump in Arizona. And the judge asked him, he asked him very pointedly, he said, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that Congress can lift the disability if it's imposed. But it doesn't say imposed by whom, imposed how, by what method or manner, and that was left unclear. And when he asked me that, because he asked both of us that question, and when he asked me that question, I said, well, Your Honor, it's very clear that there's only two logical deductions from that statement. It would either be the executive branch at the state level, which would be the chief elections officer of the state, which would be the secretary of state in the vast majority of states. I think there's five states that have commissions, and there's Utah where it's the lieutenant governor. But other than that, it would be the chief elections officer of the state, or alternatively, there would be a judicial finding. Now, judicial finding would require somebody with Article Three standing who has a personal injury, i.e. a fellow Republican primary presidential candidate, i.e. me, mm. <laughs> uh, to actually bring a cause of action and allow a court to make that civil determination. I said, those are your only two routes. And I said, and I'm curious to see what Trump's lawyers think some of the alternatives are. So when he turned to Trump's lawyers and said, OK, tell me, who do you think should impose this? They said, we don't know, Your Honor. We think maybe it should be Congress. And the judge was just like, that doesn't make any sense. How could Congress impose it by majority vote, but then only lift it by a two-thirds majority vote? That doesn't make any sense. Like, And they, they would have mentioned that. So uh, he said, counsel, I, I don't find that convincing. Give me something else. Because right now, I'm only taking judicial notice of two options, the chief elections officer or somebody, it, the judiciary in, in a case where there's Article Three standing, which you know, Mr. Castro argues is him. And they, their argument was just that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment has outlived its purpose. And the judge was just like, OK, I'm not buying that. So the judge is going to rule possibly one of those if he determines even that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing. So let's back up here because all of this must be sounding very confusing to, to the audience. And let's just break it down slowly here because there is a lot of legalese here. And it's a kind of complicated argument that, you know, has never really been tested. We've never had this situation before. So, you know, we haven't had a chance to see how previous courts would look at this. So let's look at the, at the section itself. It says, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector or president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may be may by a vote of two-thirds of each House remove such a disability. So what's important to you in those in that, that, that whole section? It's part of a, a four there's four sections, right? In Amendment 14. What is what makes this one so important? And why are we why is this one the most pivotal one? Yeah, so the reason so I'll, I'll kind of break it down. So first it says no person shall be and then they try to do their best to name every possible office under the United States. Now, it, it, what's key here is understanding the history behind this and the initial proposals by some of the radical Republicans, the extreme liberals of that time, and then the conservatives at that time. Because there was a lot of difference back then with regard to the title of Democrat, Republican, I'm going to instead argue liberal and conservative because that puts it more clear. Because back then the liberals were Republicans and the conservatives were Democrats. So – the extreme liberals were arguing that everybody in the South should basically be banned from public office. 
And what they wanted, a very extreme approach, was to basically send in an entire political ruling class from the north into the south to take over all political leadership. And, and then that way they could uh, effectuate all of the changes that were necessary as a result of the surrender of the Civil War, right? So imagine Alexandria Ocasio or Cortez becoming governor of Alabama, you know, and how people would absolutely lose their goddamn minds, <laughs> right? So, so that's exactly what happened. No, I'm sorry. That's not what happened. That's what they were arguing for. Now, the moderates at that time were saying, okay, calm down. That's a little bit too far. What we think is at that time, everybody was getting drafted, right? Even if you were a liberal 18-year-old at that time and you right. were an abolitionist in the South, if Confederate recruiters showed up at your door, you had to pack your bags and join them. If not, you'd be, you know, uh, the firing squad. Let's right. just be honest, right? You would have been fire squad. So what the moderates in the North said is they said, guys, look, like a lot of the rank and file, they had no choice. Some of them were freaking abolitionist kids, right? So we don't think it's fair that everybody should be punished. So they started questioning, okay, then who should be punished? And they said, we need to punish the executive leadership, the elected officials. So they were trying to figure out how do we identify that? You know, do we set a certain class, you know, rank of E1 or, you know, E7 and above? Like, how does that work? So then they ended up realizing, wait a minute, it's only technically officers. We'll target officers in the military. And then anybody that took an oath of office to defend and uphold the Constitution of the United States. Back then it was simply titled to support the Constitution. That's the word that they used. Later, it, it changed in the 1800s to uphold and defend. And that's important because Trump is, is making a whole argument on that basis, which I'll get into later. But so they, that was the compromise. They, they eventually said, we're going to, to basically, and then also, sorry, the extreme liberals wanted everybody to be banned, but only for 10 years. So it was going to be a short period. And then the South could reclaim political leadership once they instituted all the reforms. But the moderates were like, how about this? How about a lifetime ban from public office, but we only target the executive leadership? And so eventually that was the compromise. It was the moderates in the Senate that got their way. And so they eventually said it's only going to apply to people that actually took an oath of office. And then they went and proceeded to name all the different positions, right? Senator, representative, e even an elector, right? So you couldn't even attend the electoral college if you fought for the Confederacy or gave aid or comfort, which I'll explain that as well right now. It says, or hold any office. And that's it, right? It, it should have just ended there. They can't hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or enter any state, you know, including the chief executive of that state. So that includes even, you know, the governor and everything. So basically the idea here was they were trying to find a way to basically name every office. That's important because Trump right now is trying to argue that the office of the presidency isn't an office under the United States, that it's somehow exempt, which Judge Ray has literally almost laughed at that suggestion. Trump also made and this is these are real arguments Trump's lawyers are making in court. They also said Trump swore to defend and uphold the Constitution, not support the Constitution. And so therefore, Section three of the 14th Amendment doesn't apply again. Right. Completely. I, I can't even believe yeah, my ears sad. when I'm in federal court and he's making those arguments. And the judge even said, are you telling me that the framers said that it wasn't OK for a senator or a congressman or even a local city councilman to engage in insurrection? But the president of the United States could like that doesn't make any sense. Right. Nice. And so the, the judge just basically shot that down. Now, what's important here is Trump is arguing that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment also requires that he personally engage in the insurrection. And they said that the where it says or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof refers to foreign enemies. And obviously that's bogus because we know that all that happened there was the bifurcation of foreign and domestic 
they're still talking when they were the thing is that in Trump's mind, he doesn't view the January 6th insurrectionists as enemy of the, enemies of the state, when right. in fact they were, right? They attempted to overthrow our government to sack Congress, right? They accomplished what Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis could never accomplish, which is an invasion and sacking of the United States Capitol. Right. But that's what they mean when they refer to enemies. They meant the domestic enemies thereof. They just assumed that that was implied, but sometimes that's what happens when you know drafters assume that people are going to be intelligent in the future. <laughs> so, but yeah, Trump's making that argument. And then they also argued, well, why would they say that you have to engage in insurrection and then water it down to say aid or comfort? Right. It's because they hadn't adopted the, the phrase that's commonly used now in uh, statutory language where it says directly or indirectly, right? So they would have said if you engage in an insurrection directly or indirectly, directly would be obvious, right? Like you stormed the Capitol. Indirect would be aid or comfort, right? Aid through the, you know, incitement, comfort through words of sympathy, expressions of want of sympathy with the movement. We love you. You're very special. You know, all the things that we heard Trump say, you know, if I get reelected, we're going to treat all the January 6th defendants fairly. We might consider pardons. Those are all expressions of aid and comfort. And so that's really what it comes down to. If you were not, I'm not personally arguing that Trump directly engaged in the insurrection because I think that's a much higher and more difficult threshold. But what I'm arguing is that he provided aid or comfort to the insurrection and his public statements, you know, are irrefutable, right? Because they were on live television, which Trump's lawyers didn't even try to contest that. And that's what's going to be decided by the uh, um, U.S. District Judge Douglas Reyes in, in Arizona within the next uh, three business days. So we'll get to that in a second, the Arizona case that you're putting up there. But the there are, seems to be these are the basic questions that comes out of that come out of that uh, section, right? There's in terms of the Trump arguments, there are they're arguing that it doesn't apply to Donald Trump. We've covered some of that. So does Section 3 apply to Donald Trump is a, is a question that is going to be adjudicated at some point. Now, the other question we spoke about earlier regarding the Colorado cases was January the 6th an actual insurrection? And does that have to be adjudicated by anybody? Has, you know, and, and you've got a differing argument on that. I mean, so tell us exactly how you feel, whether January 6th needs to be a, adjudicated an insurrection. And is it OK for Congress to have done it through the January 6th committee or does it have to be through the courts? It definitely has to be through the courts. That's for certain. So this came up on Tuesday in the Arizona trial. So at that trial, the judge did. So I asked the court to take judicial notice of the January 6th Congressional Committee's report mm -hmm. and Trump's side objected. And they said the court can take judicial notice, but it cannot accept the findings as fact, right? Because it hasn't comported with the federal rules of evidence. You know, it wasn't subject to cross-examination. And all of those things. And so the judge then said, uh, Mr. Castro, it does little good for me to take judicial notice of it if I can't accept the findings of fact. Right. So, so do you want to withdraw that so that it's not contested? And I basically withdrew it. I said, that's fine. I mean, I, I do ask that you take judicial notice of it, but I'm not asking that you rely on any of the facts. And so I wanted to avoid that because if not, it would have delayed the hearing and said, told basically it would have resulted in the judge saying, then I can't make a ruling on this because we got to resolve this, this dispute. So I, I was utilizing Arizona to basically try to streamline a, a decision just on the papers and, and the indisputable comments that, that Trump made. But as far as January 6th being an insurrection, there's the Amy Warwick cases. Those were from the late 1800s. And I, I love that case because the US, it was the U.S. Supreme Court first. And second, they very thoroughly shot down the argument 
and this was a good argument on the part of Trump. And so I'm going to switch gears and, and pretend to be Trump's lawyer right now. And I always thought that this would be a good argument until I found the Warwick cases, the yeah. Amy Warwick cases. But I was going to argue that if I was Trump, I would argue that the only criminal charges that have come out of January 6 were conspiracy to commit an insurrection. But conspiracy to commit insurrection does not amount to an insurrection, right? It's like a conspiracy to commit murder. Yeah, we were stopped in our tracks. We didn't get to complete it. But if no murder was committed and murder was a prerequisite to this provision being kicked in, then it never actually happened. Right. right. Now, that sounds like a really good argument, but the Amy Warwick case from the U.S. Supreme Court shoots that down. And what it says is that there's various stages to a rebellion. It starts initially with civil disobedience, and then at some point it transforms into an, an insurrection. And then from an insurrection, it goes to a disorganized rebellion. And then once that rebellion gets organized and gets the backing of, of the political class, then it becomes a formal civil war, right? Once you've put together the states, right? They've signed a pact to the Confederate States of America. They've elected the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis. And then there's a formal declaration of war. Now you have civil war. So what it said is that there's these various stages, but what it recognized was that everything before a disorganized rebellion is effectively an insurrection. Okay. And it can be everything that seems like a, a simple riot to more organized shooting and the use of guns. But it basically said the use of firearms and weapons is not a prerequisite. It can basically be people with torches, right? You know, just a bunch of the masses getting angry, breaking windows, ransacking Congress. So the Amy Warwick U.S. Supreme Court case makes it clear that January 6th was, in fact, an insurrection. Okay, so then it leads us to this next question of is it self-executing? So if you know it's visible to everybody that it's that it's an insurrection and whether it's you know it goes to court or otherwise, it's still an insurrection. Why isn't it then self-executing? Why doesn't uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the the two best arguments against Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment being self-executing, and I like doing this once in a while, right? Like playing devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make Trump's best argument and then explain why it's inapplicable. So the 14th Amendment has five provisions. You know, the first is the one everybody knows, right? Everybody's entitled to equal protection under the law. The section two, it, it's some random administrative one, same with, with number four. But number three is the anti-insurrection clause. And then number five is the enabling clause. The enabling clause says that Congress shall have the power to enact all legislation that's necessary and proper to enforce the provisions of this amendment. And so Trump's attorneys are arguing that Basically, you can enact provisions to enforce equality just like you can enact laws that enforce Section 3. But because Congress never enacted legislation to enforce Section 3, there's no cause of action. So Castro's complaint, Cruz's complaint, free speech for the people, all these complaints should be dismissed as a matter of law. Congress failed to act, and therefore you know, there, there's no cause of action for any of them to bring. And without that enabling legislation, um, it's not self-executing. That's their best argument. And, and it's, it's pretty sound, right? It's backed yeah, by Section like, 5 of the 14th Amendment. Yeah. The counter argument to that is not what former Chief Justice of the United States, Senate P. Chase, found in the criminal trial of former president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. In that case, Jefferson Davis's lawyers – this is Jefferson Davis, right? The conservatives, the, the, the racists, you know, they, their legal argument was exactly what I already explained before, that the treason provision was bifurcated. 
because they didn't want to condemn to death everybody that fought for the Confederacy, right? Because because it constituted treason. Right. So instead, they made it a political offense. Still, we'll get into that separately. They made it into a political offense if you engaged in domestic insurrection or rebellion, the penalty for which was a lifetime ban from public office. Furthermore, to prosecute Jefferson Davis for treason would violate the double jeopardy clause because you're punishing him twice for right. the same crime. Right. What the judge said, but you haven't been punished. We haven't found that you are banned from office for, for a lifetime under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And then Jefferson Davis's lawyers argued Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Your Honor, is self-executing. Mr. Jefferson Davis already recognizes that he's banned from public office for life. And so on that basis, he's already accepted that punishment. And therefore, the charge for treason should be dismissed. Ah, that's interesting. Okay. So, they so technicality, but it actually lands up being yeah. accident. Okay, interesting. Exactly. So then Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase looked at that and eventually agreed. By the time he was about to issue his decision, however, Congress passed the Amnesty Act of 1872, mm -hmm. which that was in a two-thirds majority in both houses and said anyone and everyone up until this date that fought for the Confederacy or engaged in any insurrection is – Forgiven, the ban from lifetime public office is lifted. And that was also just a few months after uh, President Andrew Johnson issued his Christmas Day proclamation and criminally pardoning everybody that fought for the South. And it was part of the reconciliation process. It was 1871 to 1872. They were trying to bury the hatchet and just put the Civil War behind them. Right. And so those two acts occurred you know, within a short span of time. And so by the time Chief Justice Samuel P. Chase issued his order, in the case of Jefferson Davis, he acknowledged that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was self-executing, but then said, but it doesn't matter anymore because Andrew Johnson issued his Christmas Day proclamation, pardoning everybody that fought for the South on his way out of office. And then after Ulysses S. Grant became president, the Amnesty Act was passed, and, and that was pretty much it. That's it. Everybody got criminally pardoned. Yeah. 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 The treason aspect, does that apply still? I mean, does that still work as precedent that, that it is self-executing? See, that's the thing is that then two years later in the Griffin case, mm -hmm. there was a former slave and now a black American citizen, mm -hmm. and he was appealing his criminal conviction on the basis that the judge presiding in his case fought for the South and was therefore disqualified at that time because it was before the Amnesty Act had passed right. that he was disqualified from holding office. In that case, the federal judge cast a doubt on whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was self-executing. But it was mainly in dicta because ultimately the merits of the case concluded that although the judge may have been disqualified or I should say disqualifiable, right, could have been removed from office, we still have to respect the all of his official acts while he was wearing that robe. Yeah, that makes sense. And so – that that was so it was indicted that the judge basically said, I'm not sure if Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing. But again, the the actual substantive ruling was on different grounds. But they they grabbed that dicta out of context. I'm sorry. Dicta is a, is a legal term that yeah. basically means a, a judge's comments, but it, it's not subject to full legal analysis. Right. It's just an offhand idea, but he hasn't supplied the legal reasoning and basis for it. So, and so sorry. Yeah, go ahead. A little bit about the timing here. So let's see if we can talk about this next section here. This is really what makes you very special because there are various cases in front of various courts right now. But what makes a difference is who has standing to actually bring a case. So tell us what who actually has standing, in your opinion. I mean, some of these cases, like the Colorado case, are brought by citizens of Colorado. 
but you're the only person who can bring any case based on the fact that you're also a candidate, which gives you a specific kind of standing. So tell us a little bit about the difference that that makes and why it, if it does, in fact, benefit your case more than the other cases brought by citizens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So standing is a is a principle that comes out of the concept of whether there's truly a case or controversy. Mm-hmm. And that is required, right? Because under Article Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, which uh, delineates the powers of the federal judiciary, it says that the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary have authority over all cases and controversies. So they got into the question of what constitutes a case or controversy, and they said it has to be somebody with a direct concrete injury. Right, a particularized. It, it can't be too large of a class. Some cases you can have a very large class when you have a lot of people directly injured, right? And that's why we have class action. Yeah. But but it has to be again very concrete and particularized. And so thankfully, this is where the you know the Obama birthers shot themselves in the foot because this case law in the context of political injuries was really undeveloped. We had a few cases from the seventies and eighties from this independent candidate by the name of Falani. And she was aggressive in the federal judiciary, but she wasn't that great of a lawyer. But still, her persistence created a lot of the initial basis for the idea of a political competitive injury. And so thank God for her. Then we had the idiots, right? The birthers, you know, after Obama's election in 2008. And that provided a lot more clarity because time after time, the courts shot that down and consistently said voters do not have standing to sue to try to disqualify a candidate because their injury is too um, it's too shared with everybody right you have 86 million other voters that are also pissed that their guy didn't win and so it's just like you're not personally injured by this and so the question that came up from that and some of the dicta from the judges in that was that uh, it would need to be a candidate but then the problem is that if you waited till the general election so say, let's say it's a Democrat suing a Republican. At that point, it becomes a non-justiciable political question, right? Because it's the judiciary interfering in what is effectively a, a de facto two-party system, right? So if you disqualify one candidate, you're guaranteeing the other one's going to become the, the, the next uh, right. president. And so what I extrapolated from reading all those cases was this has to be in the primary and actually not during the primary, preferably before the primaries even start. So this would need to be initiated sometime in the fall, maybe not as early as August, maybe not as late as October, preferably around September so that we have time to get through some of the procedural BS. And then by the time everybody's applying to be on the ballot, the case will be ripe for judicial review. Mm -hmm. So I marked my calendar for September 1st, (laughs) and sure enough, that was the day that I filed the first case in New Hampshire. And the first criticism I got from a lot of legal scholars was, oh, why is this guy filing so early? He's not even on the ballot of any states. I'm like, dude, I have to serve the summons and the complaint. They have 21 days to respond. Then I have 14 days to file a response to their motion to dismiss. Then the court has 30 days to respond. I have to account for all that. If I wait till I'm on the ballot, the judge isn't going to be able to decide till February. By then, 12 states would have already had their elections. Right. So I had to do it early to give time to get through some of that procedural BS so that by the time the judge was considering the case, which literally on Tuesday, as I have my phone on speaker and I'm conducting the telephonic uh, motion to dismiss hearing in Arizona, I'm simultaneously on mute with the secretary of state filling out my ballot access application. (laughs) 
Wow. Like it's hilarious. They, the judge is literally talking. Right. I have them on on mute, yeah. and I, I'm working with them and I'm filling. I'm like, okay, stamp it, and and so they go to the back, they stamp it, they give me a copy, and then I go off mute and I tell the judge, I just got it notarized right now. And I could hear the frustration in the judge's voice because he was, but at the same time, he seemed impressed. Holy shit. And I talk about like last minute, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, but see, that's what I, uh, if I had waited until Tuesday to file the case, yeah. this wouldn't be happening until January, February, and, and Arizona's going to be holding its primary by then. So yeah. it, it would have basically become moot. So the, the timing w was done uh, correctly. But again, standing goes back to the concept that, um, you have to have an identifiable group of people. And so now that I've, I've checked all those boxes, right? Like when I first brought the case in Florida in January, my argument was I registered with the FEC as a candidate. Trump's lawyers had a very obviously strong argument to say that being registered with the FEC is just for campaign finance reporting. He hasn't shown that he's actually going to qualify for any ballots or he's going to be actually be on any ballots. Then I get on the ballots and they say, yeah, he's on the ballots, but come on, he's not even out there campaigning. Like he just got on the ballot for the sole purpose of suing Trump. Mm -hmm. My response is that makes me smart. But either way, like I actually am campaigning. I have a campaign website. I have a billboard in town, down Phoenix, which I submitted that affidavit today. And the judge immediately issued out an order saying no more exhibit can be submitted. But it's because I boxed him in, right? Like I proved that I had a billboard in downtown Phoenix and, and that I had a contract for campaign expenditures with Outfront Media. And so what that does is that shows that I'm not just this generalized voter. Right. I'm a candidate. I, I'm not only on the ballot in Arizona. I'm out there campaigning. I put campaign signs up. I made it a point that my campaign staffers actually put signs on the street where the, I know the judge lives and some of the <laughs> other court officials live. And I know that pissed them off because the judge kind of pointed that out during the hearing. But, but it doesn't matter because the judge is a voter. And even if I was particularly targeting the judge, I'm targeting a voter of the state of Arizona. Let's so, talk a little uh, bit about the standing yeah. situation because you've got, you know, you've got your cases which seem to have more weight because you're actually an injured party versus the voters who are injured parties but don't have as much standing. Is that what, you're, is that what you think the difference is between your cases and those cases brought um, by Crew and the voters of Colorado, for example? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I tried telling crew and free speech for the people. And look, initially, I was coordinating with these guys. I was spearheading the effort to try to draft either Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger to do this. Mm -hmm. That was in, in right after, like within two months after the insurrection. So around March of 2021, I was burning up the phone. I even made like political contributions to them to try to get their attention. And I was trying to tell them, look, run for president. And then you have standing to do this. But for whatever reason, they're not lawyers, right? So they're probably just, I don't know what this quack is talking about. So it wasn't until towards the end of the year that I just realized, you know what? I'm a lawyer. I understand this concept more than anybody. I can't convince them because they're not lawyers. So I'm just going to have to do this myself. What is, and makes you more, what is, is it that makes your standing more important than the voters standing? And so is it just that the Supreme Court? is going to look at it better ultimately in the final course of this? Or what makes it was your case so much stronger? So the thing is that without standing, a federal court doesn't have jurisdiction to even hear the case. So they can't consider it. And so that's the part that sucks. You're right. It doesn't matter how many voters come forward with their case. It's ultimately going to be dismissed because they're going to say you don't have an injury. If you don't have an injury, then the court doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction to even hear the case, and it has to get dismissed. If you don't get past that jurisdictional hurdle, 
then you can never have the court make a determination of whether there was an insurrection and whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies. So that's the first hurdle that you have to get over. If you get across that first hurdle of jurisdiction, which the First Circuit, by the way, is going to rule within the next three business days, and they're going to reverse the New Hampshire judge in my favor on that. That's my prediction. It's the most liberal circuit. So they're going to they're going to do that. And so this is going to be established case law before Thanksgiving. So before next Thursday, for before sure. What is the established case law that they have to prove? That you have to prove oh, what? Oh, they're going to find that I that because I'm on the ballot and I'm a candidate, although minutely, I am being injured. Right. And that is based on Trump's own expert witness who admitted in court that at most uh, Castro would probably lose a few hundred votes because even Mickey Mouse gets a few hundred votes every single year in New Hampshire. And so what he didn't realize is that insult actually helped me because I was just like, thanks, you just admitted that I – because the Supreme Court in Baker v. Carr said if I were to even lose a fraction of a vote, that constitutes injury to provide standing. So, and so situation. you'll be different than the Colorado case. Even if the Colorado case, the judge comes down tomorrow and says – Absolutely, Trump should be taken off the ballot. It's going to get shut down by the Supreme Court, ultimately, is your argument. But in your case, it doesn't get shut down by the Supreme Court because you have standing, and therefore you can get the secondary sort of hurdle, which is how, you know, is, is, uh, whether there was really an insurrection on, on January the 6th. Is that what, we, what you're looking at? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And how long is that going to take? It seems to me like you're under enormous time pressure because we're already in the election cycle. Everyone's, yeah. everyone's you know, off to the races and, and we've got to you know, challenge these primaries. And then is there a secondary uh, set of court cases that has to challenge whether he can even run for the presidency? No, so I got it. Don't worry. I, I, like I said, I planned this out for two years. So I'll, I'll look. And now I feel comfortable disclosing the plan because there's literally nothing Trump and his lawyers can do about it. It's already, we've passed the Rubicon on that. Right. So this is what's going to happen. By before Thanksgiving, so by next week, Wednesday, the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit is going to reverse the New Hampshire judge. And he's going to say, no, Mr. Castro has, in fact, demonstrated a minute injury, but he has an injury. And that can subject matter jurisdiction on the court. So they're going to remand it back to New Hampshire for for rehearing. But what's going to happen then is that's going to get remanded. So probably around the first week of December, the judge is going to hold another hearing on Trump's motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim. The judge is going to conclude that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not self-executing, and then he's going to dismiss the case again. So I'm going to have to do an emergency appeal back to the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. They probably won't render a decision until close to Christmas time. But by the time it gets remanded back down to New Hampshire in the first week or second week of January, the New Hampshire primary would have already happened. Mm. And so then the judge is going to say, oops, too late. The case is now moot. The primary already happened. Case dismissed. But guess what? I have a backup case in Rhode Island, and that's also in the First Circuit. So Providence, Rhode Island, and the chief judge have now already stepped up, and they basically said that you're going to clear the First Circuit hurdles on the self-executing – or sorry, subject matter jurisdiction and then the self-executing nature of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Their primary is not until April. So we have plenty of time. No, I'm sorry, mid-March. Theirs is in mid-March, so we have plenty of time. So then what I'm going to do there is I'm going to file a request for an emergency expedited trial on the merits, and I'm also going to call for witnesses. So it's going to look exactly like the Colorado case, right? Uh, the the expert constitutional law experts, uh, Pat Cipollone, Mark Meadows, all of them are going to be called as witnesses to try to discover Trump's state of mind. There's going to be a full trial, most likely mid to late January in Rhode Island. Then that case is, of course, going to go in my favor. I can almost definitively tell you that. 
it's going to go up to the first circuit. But Trump knows at that point that the first circuit, it's the most liberal circuit, right? It, it's He's not even going to wait for them. He's going to do an immediate Rule 24 emergency writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, theoretically, he could also decide not to appeal the case and just throw the finger to Rhode Island and mm. say, what does Rhode Island matter anyways, right? Mm. Rhode Island and New Hampshire, screw them both. And the thing is that if I win the case, he controls whether to appeal. He mm. could choose not to appeal. But what's going to happen then is I'm going to enforce that decision in Maine, get him removed from the Maine ballot as well. And he might also write that off because he might say, screw Maine, right? It's one electoral vote in the general election. To hell with Maine. I'm not going to appeal that decision either. The problem there is he's allowing case law to be established that is now going to influence the Ninth Circuit in my case in Arizona. So yeah. now let's switch gears. We go to Arizona. Regardless of how the lower court or let's say that the Arizona judge, right, who's center-right conservative, let's say he were to rule that that he doesn't believe that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, right? So same process in New Hampshire, appellate emergency appeal. It comes back in January, and then there has to be a full trial on the merits. Right. And let's assume that the judge rules that he doesn't believe that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment – or he doesn't believe that January 6th was an insurrection or that aid or comfort was provided. That now goes to the Ninth Circuit. When, not if, the Ninth Circuit rules in my favor, mm. Trump loses Montana, Idaho, Arizona, Alaska, and Nevada. Mm. Those states coupled with the one electoral vote in Maine. There is zero path to 270. He cannot win. And so at that point, Trump has absolutely no choice but to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's where we're going to end up. What does the Supreme Court then do? What's the, what's the question before the Supreme Court? So the Supreme Court's going to be reviewing the, the lower court's decision or the appellate court's decision to reverse the lower court, depending on, on how things go. But, but what's effectively going to happen is they're going to have to make that decision on the merits of those questions that you pointed out on the screen. Yeah. Is, so does Jonathan Castro have standing? Was January 6th an insurrection? Is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment self-executing? Were Trump's comments tantamount to aid or comfort to that insurrection? And, and then they have the, the right to then pull him out from, the, from running in any election going forward? Or is that, does that sort yes. of gives him a light ban? On, on no, no, no. So, so what would happen is, I mean, first we got the three liberals in the bag, right? We got Jackson, Sotomayor, and Kagan. We know that Roberts is going to be on our side. And then we know the four conservatives, right? There is Alito, Thomas, Kami, uh, Amy Comey Barrett, and Kavanaugh. Yeah. The swing vote here is a Gorsuch. And the reason that I know that Gorsuch is the swing vote is because a lot of people don't know this, but he's a libertarian at heart. Mm -hmm. And libertarians are absolutely fearful of tyrannical executives, mm -hmm. and he knows that's what Trump is, and he would be terrified at the prospect of not ruling against him and then Trump doing something outrageous like January 6th again or going forward with some of his you know, Vision 2025 plans. Well, so Thomas, he could even – doesn't recuse himself. I mean he should recuse himself. His wife exactly. is – as is Alito. Yes. I mean you know, you've got opportunities yeah. there to see the court actually shrinking in this case. Yeah, so I put this plan together a long time ago. I called it Operation Deadlock, and, and I'll go into the details of, of what it is because it's already public information now because Newsweek covered it. But so although I think Gorsuch would side with us, we still have a backup plan. So the backup plan is nobody has ever, when the Supreme Court takes up a case, aggressively sought to disqualify a justice because – and it's normally because the, the, the attorneys that practice before the Supreme Court don't want to do that, right? You're going to – burn that bridge permanently and have a bad working relationship. I don't give a shit because I'm never going to practice before them again. So I'm going to very aggressively 
go after uh, Justice Thomas. I'm going to argue that his wife and her presence there violates 28 U.S.C. 455 because she's a potential material witness to the mm-hmm. case. Yeah. They're likely going to argue that she's a witness, but she's not a material witness. That's what it's going to come down to. And very coincidentally, three months ago, the Supreme Court decided to define what a material witness is. I'm telling you, they are laying the groundwork for this so precisely because they are trying to prevent Thomas from being forced to recuse here. But they defined a material witness now to say that somebody that can prove one of the elements of a claim. And so Jenny Thomas wouldn't arise to that level. And so that would be their way of preemptively neutralizing my strongest argument to disqualify Thomas. But we're going to try really hard to move to disqualify Thomas. That's basically what Operation Deadlock's all about. That explains some of the background on what's happening with ProPublica um, and how they're trying to, you know, really, you know, tarnish Thomas and not just tarnish him because that sounds unjustified, but reveal him for the corrupt justice that he is. Yeah, she was in the room for a lot of this, these conversations. We, in fact, she's never really been deposed under oath, as far as I know. Her only testimony yeah. was with, uh, with uh, not under oath in front of the uh, in front of Congress. So. Wow, this is an incredible operation you're pulling off here. What timing do you think, if this all goes according to your plan here, when does the Supreme Court ultimately rule, if you win, that, that Trump should not be on the ballot? It's going to be mid-February. So for, I can guarantee you it's going to be mid-February. It's going to be before Super Tuesday. And so they'll hear arguments, um, and then within a week or two, they'll make a decision, and it's going to happen I would say 100% before March 1st. It's going to happen in February. So they would issue out that ruling at that point. You know, it, it, there's going to be a lot of protests in D.C. It's it, Who knows how it's going to play out. It'll get a little bit wild. But I do know that they will ultimately side with us. If they, if for any reason Gorsuch, or I'm sorry, Thomas were to have to recuse, it would end up in a 4-4 deadlock, hence Operation Deadlock. Right, right. Um, if it ended up in a deadlock 4-4 because Thomas recused, then what would effectively happen then? And let's say that would be Thomas recusing and then Gorsuch not siding with us, right? Mm-hmm. So we just got the three liberals plus Roberts and then Gorsuch joined the other conservatives. So we got a 4-4 deadlock. What happens with a 4-4 deadlock is the appellate court decisions stand, mm-hmm. which means that Trump is still off the ballot in the first and ninth. He'll be on the ballots in all the other states, but that doesn't matter. There's no path to 270. So at that point, the Republican National Committee would have to basically initiate emergency procedures. Their convention isn't until July 15th anyways. So when they get to the convention, they would pretty much just tell the delegates like, look, yes, you're Trump delegates, but you can't vote for Trump. We're not going to nominate somebody in contravention to what the Supreme Court said. And so at that point, they're going to have to rally against an an alternative, most likely Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. And does it make a difference if the Colorado case that gets up to the Supreme Court and they knock it back saying, you know, you don't have uh, standing here, it doesn't affect your case in any way? No, and the Supreme Court wouldn't say standing. Again, they would say federal preemption. So they would say, unfortunately, state courts don't have the authority to make to answer questions of federal law. And so they would basically just vacate the judgment. Can I ask you, I know we're running out of time. Why are you doing this and who's funding you? This seems like an incredible exercise of, you know, doing the right thing. But it costs a lot of money. Uh, Running a presidential campaign can't be cheap. Certainly running the court proceedings here can't be cheap. Why are you doing it? And who's funding you? Uh, yeah, nobody's funding me. <laughs> so so I have a tax law firm. I have two law degrees, one of which is from Georgetown in tax law. Cash room company it generates about two to four million dollars a year. I've enjoyed that. Um, I've had a lot of fun. Um, I guess when I was a lot younger, 18, 19, I was really involved in politics. I was, I was an anti-corruption crusader. Um, but I saw what was happening, especially after 
the 2016 election and then 2017 in Charleston, and I've studied history enough to to see what's happening. Mm-hmm. I saw January 6th before anybody else. I saw Trump's flirting with the, some of the rhetoric of Hitler well before anybody else. I, I've seen this before, and I've seen it time and time again. And I've what I've seen also is it republics and great shining beacons on a hill always fall because people always think, what possible difference can I make? Who am I to be the one to step up and do this? And I'm just a... Uh, I'm just an international tax attorney, right? I'm just a tax nerd that happens to be passionate about history and constitutional law. I saw this opportunity. I've spent a lot of money on dumber things. You know, if, if you look at my social media, you'll see that in, in the early days, I bought my dad a, a 57 Chevy Bel Air convertible. I bought myself a 2014 Ferrari California. And I figured, you know, I've spent a lot of money on very stupid things. And I would not want to be able to say in the future that I had the legal knowledge and the financial resource to do something, but I was too chicken shit to do it. And so I said, no, I'm going to be the one that steps up and does this. And it seems a lot of, it seems really strange to a lot of people. I mean, I, everybody knows that, that free speech for the people is being financed by Zuckerberg and George Soros. And that's not a conspiracy. That's like public information, but, uh, but not me. Unfortunately, um, I, I would, I'll say right now on the record that if George Soros would like to give me money, I'll take it. Um, I've spent about maybe only $20,000 to date. Um, now maybe about 25000 mainly on court filing fees because it's a $402 filing fee and I filed 27 So you can do the nice. math on that. <laughs> and then there's all the flights. And trust me, yeah. my wife is kind of starting to complain because she was yeah. like, this costs a lot of money. And you're like flying to all these places. Nobody's backing you financially on this. And I just told her, I was like, look, we've been blessed financially. I've spent, again, a lot of money on stupider things. I Spending this amount, which isn't even a lot, you know, to potentially preserve and defend our republic and our constitution is, is well worth it. Why not run for president proper then at the end of all of this? Like, why not actually, if you're going to get a, you know, the pro- public profile you're going to get by the time this is all run out, so this, why not run the campaign? Why not run all the yeah, way so, to the end? Exactly. So this came up in New Hampshire because the judge kind of wanted to know because the other side was trying to argue that I was a frivolous candidate and I wasn't serious. And and then when I was cross-examining Trump's expert witness, you know, he basically said, oh, any presidential candidate that's only spent, you know, less than $25,000 can't be viewed as a serious candidate. I would advise him to just drop out, right? You're not going to get any media coverage. And he was obviously not informed that I had been covered in every major news outlet in the freaking world. Yeah. And I said, if I told you that I had a campaign strategy where I would only spend $15,000 yet somehow get more media coverage – than Doug Burgum and Asa Hutchinson, because who the hell knows who those two guys are, and get more name recognition than those two guys, what would you say? And he said, I'd have to say that you'd have, have to have some novel, unknown strategy of genius level that nobody's ever thought of. And, and the look on the other people's faces, because they were like, God damn it, he doesn't know that the guy has actually done that. Yeah. And so, so the way that I view it is this, is this is my breakout, right? Trump made his breakout by with the whole Bertha thing, right? Like trolling uh, Obama for his birth certificate. That's how he made his entrance into the political world. It, was, it seems stupid, right? But geez, that's how he literally got a lot of initial media coverage. And then he decided to go full race and start talking about the wall and all that stuff and, uh, and then really got even more media coverage. So everybody starts somewhere. What I'm waiting for is not just one or two articles by the Associated Press and Reuters and CNN and, and all the places I've been covered. But next week, when the First Circuit finds that I have standing and this represents the first 
you know, major hit to Trump's face, you know, politically speaking in the judiciary, the amount of insane media coverage that's going to generate, it's going to be invaluable. My return on investment is already looking to be around 20,000 to one. I'm going to be getting millions of dollars in free media coverage. And so what that's going to do is that's going to give me that name recognition to where when I, not if, but when I run again in four to eight years, I won't have to introduce myself. Right now, I have to introduce myself. Mm-hmm. When this is all over, I won't. So for now, the, the campaign is, and who knows, you know, everything could change. You know, Trump gets disqualified. Ron DeSantis drops out. Nobody likes Nikki Haley. And who knows, you know, you know, but I may end up. But it could be that's good enough for people to decide with you. Who knows? Uh, yeah. So you never know how things will turn out. But, but I can't say that I do know that the next run is going to be a lot different than this one. I'm going to have a ton of more name recognition, and I, I won't need to introduce myself whenever I meet with voters. So it's not completely selfless, which is it's good to note because, you know, he's American yeah. after all. John Castro, thank you very much for being in this <laughs> really interesting conversation, breaking down everything we need to know around uh, the Section 3 of Amendment 14, and also your own motivation there in terms of running this interesting legal judicial campaign to try and get Trump off the ballot in this next 24 presidential election. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Yeah, thank you. Have a great night. All right, you too. Every minute of narratives reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative, where truth lives. One day you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative, where truth lives.